We all make such beautiful messes of our lives. No one knows this better than Emma Connolly, who has seen her promise as a surrealist painter disappear down a decade-long rabbit hole of soul-crushing McJobs, stagnant relationships, and paralyzing self-doubt. Her ironic sense of humor, along with video games and exquisite weed, are the only things that seem to keep her afloat. Fishing with Dynamite is about creativity and the belief that talent, no matter how buried, will always find a way. I'm Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for Comscore, with my new podcast, Many Screens, Big Picture, and I'm really thrilled to welcome the author of that incredible prose, B.Y. Randall. B.Y. Randall has worked as a journalist, senior editor for Fade-In Magazine and screenwriter. Based in Los Angeles, this is his first novel. It's called Fishing with Dynamite. B.Y. Randall, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, sir. I want to really talk about the book a lot. I know it's your first novel, and I've been reading this book, and it's so intriguing. But let's rewind a little bit. How did you get in the business? And I know you've been in the film industry probably longer than I have, which is a pretty damn long time. So give us a little of your backstory, B.Y. I came out of college and I actually got a job working at Paramount in uh, development and, you know, read a lot of books, read a lot of scripts uh, for a producer. And, you know, the wheels move very slowly and I got very frustrated and I was hired then actually as sort of a side job to write a script. And, you know, I'd always had a fascination with writing. I excelled at English and college. That was sort of my passion and everything. And so uh, I started drifting off into that. And actually, at one point, I had written a um, after school special that had gotten on and made years ago. And I just kept writing. And then actually, I got into journalism. And I worked for magazines and newspapers. And while that was fulfilling, my passion always still lay in writing. I uh, then started writing spec screenplays, and I wound up selling three of my spec screenplays to Sony, to Paramount, and to uh, Disney. Unfortunately, none of them ever got made. They kind of got tortured in development. Much money spent rewriting and rewriting as want to happen. That didn't deter me. So I kept running, kind of shifted gears more towards the indie world. And the genesis, how this book came to be, actually, is kind of a weird, long, twisted story. I want to hear that long, twisted story. It actually started out as a screenplay. And at one point, the story was about a male painter who had a stuffed elephant. And he goes through a traumatic head injury. And when he wakes up, the elephant is now his advisor and trying to get his life back in shape. And then, of course, Ted came out and that killed that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, right. You had that idea first. (laughs) I did. But what are you going to do? It's not, you know, a talking animal. Not that unique. But anyway, so that killed that. But I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to let this die because the idea is too universal and too important to a lot of people who've had creative lives or wish they had creative lives. And so I said, you know, I'm going to put this in a different format. So I switched the gender because I thought it'd be a better way to challenge myself. And I wrote it as an indie script. And when I couldn't get any traction on indie script, because so many of indie films are about dysfunctional families or, you know, crime thrillers and stuff like this. And this didn't fit in there at all. And so I couldn't get anywhere with that. 
And once again, I decided to shift gears again. I said, you know what? I'm going to write this as a book. Uh, I think it was Michael Blake who was a friend of Kevin Costner's. I sort of got the inspiration from their story. Back in the late 80s, he had written a screenplay and he couldn't get anybody to pay attention to it in Hollywood and was becoming very disillusioned. It's a fantastic story. If you ever go on YouTube, there's a Graham Norton episode with Costner talking about this. And Costner said, look, you know what, instead of bad-mouthing everybody in the industry and complaining and, you know, walking around like a martyr, why don't you just write the story as a book? And so he said, Michael Blake took off, went to Phoenix or somewhere and took six months, eight months, whatever, and wrote a book. And of course, it turned out to be Dances with Wolves <laughs> and came back in and obviously won an Oscar and so on and so forth. So I honestly, and I do recommend this when I talk to writers, I say, you know what, if you have a great idea and you see you're not getting any traction with it, don't just make it a script because as I've always thought, it's easier for people to loan you $10,000 in Hollywood than read a script. That is so true. <laughs> they tend to do that. Reading is not a uh, priority in many cases here. But like I said, I just thought, you know what? I'll write a first-person narrative because you can explore the character's feelings and inner thoughts way easier than you can as a third-person narrator. And so I decided just to write it as a book, and the result is what you have in your hands. And can you talk a little bit about that shifting of gears, the process, obviously the art of screenwriting and even just the formatting of it, the way you do the descriptions of the, you know, exterior day and all that stuff. And then having the dialogue for each character, was it really difficult to shift gears and turn this story into a novel rather than a screenplay or did it come naturally to you? To be honest, writing the book was much easier because writing a script is about being concise and compact. It's about truncating events and putting it into a 120-page or less format. A book, you can just go hog wild. I mean, there's no limits on what you can do with a book. And it gives you more chance to explore inner feelings that you can't really do in film and personalities because film is more a visual medium whereas books occur in your head and so i found myself completely free as a writer when i got a chance to do this as a book except here's the thing i guess i envy people who can write four to six hundred pages i still have a screenwriter's mentality which is keep it short this goes back i think it was in the 70s i remember somebody gave me a copy of the shining uh, the Stephen King book. And I read it and I said, wow, what a great story, but it's a 200 page story in a 400 page book. There was just so much padding. And that's the economy that I bring as a screenwriter, which is saying, cut out the fat, tell your story, get in and get out. Because so many books tend to be bloated, excessive sidebars and, and detours and stuff. And some people love those, but I just think with a more economic mind from a screenwriting point of view, when I wrote the book, now, we often hear of books being made into movies, novels being made into movies. Are you now in the novel zone where you want to write novels, or is it sort of you can do anything? I don't want to limit myself, but I, I love the freedom that came with writing a novel. And, you know, it's not to rule out screenplays at some later point. It's just the stories I want to tell. And here's the another thing a friend had told me who was a very successful producer, and he said, film, of course, is a collaborative medium. He says, if you want to do something and not have any creative interference, write a book. 
And that always kind of stuck with me. I never even thought about it, but it's absolutely true. Now, it's not 100% true because when you send a book that you finished, you still have to answer to editors at publishing houses. And there are certain concerns, but it's still, for the most part, is you undistilled. It's your point of view. It's what you wanted to get across. Whereas film, the writer is, you know, secondary to the director, obviously. It's a director's vision. But as far as the, the screenwriter, you hope it turns out okay. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But you were talking about as far as booking the adaptations. I mean, look, uh, recently, I, was last year, The Goldfinch, I mean, that was one of the most beloved books in the world. And it's 700 pages. Once again, how do you condense 700 pages into a two-hour movie? That's why you have miniseries now. That's why you have limited series. So you can look at Game of Thrones, you know? Yeah, and I think that when you're looking at these long-form pieces, they really do need to be broken up. Because sometimes when they try and, and look, this is the age-old story in Hollywood. Great novel. The filmmaker in everyone's individual mind makes a great movie in their head of this novel. And then when they see what Hollywood or the filmmakers have done with that, nine times out of ten, people are not happy with the result of what comes from a big screen adaptation of a novel, right? Including the writers of the novels who usually see the movies and go, oh God, what'd they do with my work? Right, because like I said, with you have 120 minutes to tell a 400 or 500 page novel, it's just not possible. I think one of the only truly great adaptations I've seen in recent years, and that's basically because they respected the material and basically filmed the written book, was No Country for Old Men. Yeah. If you read that book, it's almost identical to what you see in the movie. They didn't try and do their spin or anything on it. They respected the words of Cormac McCarthy, and they put it on screen as that. That is a great example. And as, from what I understand, the Coen brothers, when you get a Coen brothers script, you're not changing. There's no improvisation by the actors. There's no need that everything is on the page. Every movement, every bit of language, the lexicon, everything, as I understand it, is what's there on the page. So they were not only faithful to Cormac McCarthy's book, but also the actors and the creatives were really true to that script. Exactly. And a lot of times in adaptations, egos get in the way too, because the more people you bring into the process, the more voices are going to be, you know, coming to the forefront. So that's why a lot of authors are genuinely unhappy sometimes with the adaptations. Well, I'm speaking with the first time novelist, longtime writer, B.Y. Randall, his new novel, Fishing with Dynamite. I want to get into the book a little bit. The main character in the book is named Emma, described as not your average girl's girl. How do you write a female character? How do you get into that mindset? This is like really, when I read it, it's like the innermost thoughts of a really interesting character. But this character is not you, but you totally inhabit the pathos of this character. I guess that's what great writers do. For those of us who don't write or don't, write novels at all. How do you do that? How do you get in that mindset as you prepare to write this book and when you sit down to actually write? Well, as you say, yeah, she's not your typical girl. She's a Chicago South Sider, you know, a little flinty, a little salty. But strangely enough, mostly everything that I'm interested in is connected with a female point of view. Almost all the music I listen to is female artists. Most of the films I watch are female-based, 
if you know they have movies that are strictly male dominated, I always call them sausage fests. <laughs> I'm just not interested. I've been a guy for a long time. Okay, I'm interested in challenging myself and putting other points of view out. And the key is to listen. You listen to conversations. You listen to. You read. You just. I'm like a sponge. I have sucked you know all that stuff up and I absorb it. And I just want to put out a different point of view. And some people say, well, why is that guy writing a female? I've never been stay in your lane ever, ever, ever. I think that kind of conservative thought, I think, just discourages, you know, different points of view. And I don't think that, you know, a certain gender or a certain, you know, type should only write about what they know. Look, there might be some people who think I get it all wrong. Okay, so be it. It, You know. Did you grow up with, you know, I had three older sisters and my mom and my, you know, obviously my dad in the house, but it was a house that was female based because I had these three older sisters and my mom and tell me a little bit, whatever you're willing to get into about your background or all most of your friends, women, is that also where you're getting this great point of view that shows up in your book? Absolutely. I was one sister behind you. I had two sisters or have two sisters. And I was raised by a single mom who, you know, divorce, you know, was not considered a kosher thing, but she was a tough woman. And I followed her lead as far as how to succeed in life. And once again, if you're surrounded by women, you just, you know, absorb that point of view. And so it was predicated from the beginning. Well, it's kind of baked into your DNA in a sense, but you have to have that sensitivity. I would imagine there's plenty of people who grew up in a household like mine and like yours, and they don't come out with that kind of thing. But I don't know how you couldn't. But then to take that and turn it into a story like this and this character, Emma, and she's definitely a different type of character. And I don't want to give too much away. I'll let you give away whatever you want to give away in the book. But it's kind of like these dominoes fall and all these things keep happening all at once. The job isn't working out. Guy she's dating, that's not really working out. Even her car (laughs) isn't working and landlord issues and a high school reunion. So there's just all this stuff going on. And I'll let you elaborate on this story and what it means to whatever extent you uh, want without giving too much away. The whole genesis of this and the theme and the subtext of this is about creativity, because I have the belief that everybody has some kind of creative talent. Uh, When we're young, our parents, hopefully, for the most part, encouraged us to play an instrument, to sing, to dance, to uh, write. You know, I used to play the flute. You know, when I was young, my mom said, you know what, you're going to play the flute. All right. So I play the flute. And I truly believe everybody has some kind of creative spark. And because we either out of necessity or neglect, people go on with their lives and they forget about their creative talents they once, you know, harbored. And some people, you know, pursue it later in life. But most people, by the time they get to a certain age, just kind of give up, you know, and they think it's a wild dream, whatever. And this is the basis of what the book is about. But it's also the possibility of what if you had a chance 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line to renew that creative spark that you once had. The heroine happens to be 27 years old 
and she spent 10 years kind of lost in a haze of video games and drugs. So she's uh, through very kind of weird circumstances connected with this high school reunion you mentioned. Uh, she does get a chance to sort of revisit her creative aspect of her youth. And like I said, it's universal. I just wanted to helpfully inspire people that you do have a creative muse somewhere in you, and it's never too late to reach back to try and bring it out again. And look, it'll fall on deaf ears for some people. Some people say, look, when I was a kid, I used to sculpt or something like that. It's not practical now in life. And okay, what can you do? You, 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 you can't reach people like that. I, I think if you've ever had a creative talent, it, it never goes away. I always think it's buried somewhere in your DNA. And it's just whether you want to you know, reclaim it. I think that's really true. I would think too, during the pandemic that a lot of people are, I've heard of people learning to cook and learning to play guitar and doing better at it than they thought or singing and whatever it is. Maybe that's the one good thing coming out of this is that people have been forced to, I don't know when you wrote the book, but there's a lot of anecdotal you know, stories out there of people using this time during the pandemic to learn how to paint or do other things. And so I think you're absolutely right. It, it Maybe it is somewhere in the DNA. And I, my grandfather was an opera singer, right? And <laughs> nobody really knows this, but he wasn't famous. He sang in the church, the Armenian church. And when I just goof around and I will say, I will not sing now, but when I try to sing opera, it actually sounds pretty damn good. And I feel like it came from somewhere. It's kind of weird, but it's true. Well, you're right. People have been sitting around and, and, you know, some people have just been lumps and logs. One of my, you know, role models in life, one of my heroes, Taylor Swift, obviously look what she did during the pandemic. She came out with an incredible album while everybody was just kind of sitting around. So I actually wrote this last, well, I mean, the book got completed last year. So the pandemic did not figure into the book at all. So if you're wondering why people aren't wearing masks or anything, the, the book is not set in present time. It's I think that's really cool for you to do that because it, I think it actually reflects your own story, right? Because I never knew you as a novelist per se. I knew you as a writer, screenwriter, really insightful observer of entertainment and movies in the movie industry in specific. But to then read this book, it really is heartening and uh, really inspiring. It doesn't surprise me that you could do this. I've just never seen this side of you. And I think part of that is that this message of the book is also the story of what you've done with your career and with your writing. Yeah, I got to be honest. If somebody told me even as recently as two years ago, you're going to have a book, you're going to write a book. I would have just dismissed them totally out of hand. There is no way on God's green earth that I thought I would have ever written a novel. It was never on my radar. It was never in my mindset whatsoever. But once again, the key, if you are a creative person, is to adapt. If you just keep beating the same path and you're finding you're getting nowhere or you're getting a lot of resistance, you know, don't tuck your tail between your legs. Don't sit there and, you know, bay at the moon and say, God, life's so unfair. Find a different method to tell the story that you have to get out. And this is a story I had to get out into the world. And I was not, and I'm still not happy. You know, I want to see this eventually made into a movie. I, I've taken the first step. But the thing is, it, it's just too important and too universal a theme to let sit. And that's why I said, you know, look, if it gets made in a Broadway musical, that's great. You're further your audience. You know, who knows? The sky's the limit. 
but like I say, if you are, truly have a creative spark and a creative spirit, uh, you just have to keep pushing and just don't look at one avenue as saying, well, if it doesn't happen this way, then I'm not going to do it. That's wrong. You can't be pig-headed about creativity. Well, and you said earlier, you don't want to be so conservative and locked into your lane, right? So you went out, you actually walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And you mentioned you would like to see, I think it'd be a terrific movie. I don't know who I would cast in the role of Emma, but there, I think a lot of uh, actors would be really interested in playing those roles. And we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I, I just have to touch on because it's part of my growing up. I know you mentioned you wrote an after-school special. For those uninitiated who are listening, tell us about that process. That was a long time ago. What was that like, and how did that either set you on your path or change your path of what you intended to be or what you intended to do with your life and career? It was funny. It was offered by a, a gentleman named Joe Stern, who actually gave me my first job in the entertainment industry, and I will be forever grateful for him for doing that. And it was about teenage gambling of all subject matters. It was about a high school quarterback who had gotten in over his head with a a gambling addiction problem. And I really liked it. And it was a real challenge because you have to, you know, once again, it's like a 45 minute episode that you have to, you know, be compact and concise about. I found the experience very, very entertaining, very fun to do. But I, I had, you know, bigger dreams to to tell beyond, you know, television. I, I still, you know, like the, the format of television, but, you know, I think it's better right now at this point in my life to tell my stories through novel form. I just think that it's really cool that you did this, BY. I look forward to your future novels. I really want to see this as a movie because I want to see these characters established in or manifested on a screen whether a big screen or a small screen, but I think these are very uh, interesting characters. And the story, definitely, I think people should buy the book, read it, enjoy it, and be inspired by it and your story as well. And any other thoughts you have and where we can find you, where people can get the book and, and all that good stuff? It's available through Amazon and it's available through Barnes Noble and wherever fine books are sold worldwide. That's It's amazing to go on Google and see they're selling it in, in Japan and in Australia. And it, it's strange. But what I want people to take away from it, I'm, I got to be honest, and I won't lie, I'm selling hope. And I'm, I'm selling hope and inspiration. And we need a lot of that right now. We sure do. And we don't need more darkness and cynicism. I'll leave that to other people. But I, I just want to sell hope and inspiration for people. And, you know, I think they'll find themselves in a better place if they subscribe to that theory and try and put it to practical use in their everyday lives. I agree. And it's never been more relevant. Uh, like you mentioned, you wrote this well before the pandemic. But I think the release uh, window of when this recently came out that, you know, in late 2020 is the perfect time for this book. I think people get lost in it and find a lot of themes and that message of hope that you were talking about. And there's some twists and turns along the way, which I certainly will not give away here. So B.Y. Randall, thank you so much today. Your first novel, Fishing with Dynamite. Everybody go get this book wherever books are sold. Thank you very much, Paul. Paul. 